looked yesterday morning at our God. He is big. He is glorious. He is holy. He is unfathomable. And yesterday we looked at our problem. How God created everything for perfect harmony, perfect fellowship between human beings and between human beings and God. And how sin entered into the world and brought havoc. It brought sickness. It brought death. It brought distortion to our relationships. And everything that is wrong with our lives started with that one sin. And tonight we're looking at the remedy. We're looking at the one who came to take our place. We deserved punishment from God. We deserved his wrath poured out upon us because we are all sinners. Not only did we inherit guilt, not only did we inherit this sinful nature, but we have all sinned. We have all been rebels. We have shaken our fists at God. And yet he has taken initiative so that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. That, that implies a, a, a substitution. That for preposition there. He died in our place. That's what we see from the Old Testament here in Isaiah 53. Now you might ask, well, this is the Old Testament. How can this be about Jesus? Well, <laughs> ask Philip. <laughs> in the book of Acts, we see... Uh, um, Philip, who, who goes and he preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53. He reads this very passage. And he says, who is this about? And Philip preaches Jesus to him. And he's saved and he's baptized. And he goes back to Ethiopia to share the gospel with those who were there. Modern scholarship would kind of try to dismiss this and say that Christians have just kind of imposed uh, a, a Christological reading, a, a reading of, of Jesus into this text. But if it's what the apostles did, I, I think we're in good company. So let's look at Isaiah 53, but we're actually going to turn back uh, about three verses this is one of the servant songs, and uh, Chad tells me he, he preached four sermons on Isaiah 53, beginning in the same verse in, in uh, 13 of 52, not long ago. So it ought to be fresh in your mind, but you know I'm a different person from Chad, so uh, it'll come out a little different. Beginning in verse 13. Behold... My servant shall act wisely. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he bore and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to obey. Lord, let us not be like like those who Isaiah preached to like those who Jesus preached to, who saw but didn't see, we pray that you would open our eyes and that we would behold you. And Father, be with me, a weak, frail sinner who you died in my place. Give me strength to preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The 
first word we see here is behold. Behold. That's what we need to do tonight. We need to behold the suffering servant. We need to behold Jesus. Just like on Sunday morning, we were beholding God who was high and lifted up. Who was this great, big God with the seraphim flying over him. We need to behold the Lord Jesus tonight. Um, Sometimes I have found that that uh, in in applying a sermon, people want things that are practical. They want we want people uh, they want a preacher to tell you this is what you should do and this is what you should do and things like that. But but, you know, what I find struggling sometimes is a passage like this when our our objective, what we're supposed to do to be able to obey this is just to behold. It's not like you can you can you write down some things to go do after the sermon. It's it's just behold Jesus. Behold him. The uh, Puritan um, Thomas Chalmers. um, He has a book. I haven't read it, but the title says it all. It makes the point. And that's uh, the expulsive power of a new affection. Let me explain what that that means. Um, Do you want to change? Do you want to have life change? Is there some sin that you're struggling to get over? Is there some anxiety that you're trying to get past? Is there some addiction that you're dealing with? Is something holding you back that you desire to be free from? The way to get rid of that is not through more human effort and striving. It's by beholding Jesus. It's by beholding him. That expulsive power of a new affection is the idea that we let go of the other things. The things that we're trying to get rid of. When we behold God with a new affection. It expels all those other desires out because we have grown to love Jesus so much. And that's what we should do tonight as we see and behold the suffering servant who did this for us. He says, my servant shall act wisely. Another translation might say, My servant will prosper. Basically, the idea is my servant knows what to do and he will accomplish what he was sent to do. God is telling his people, I'm going to send a servant and he will prevail. He will accomplish what I'm sending him to do. It says he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And this is the same author we looked at yesterday morning. We talked about God being high and lifted up. And as we read this, it kind of echoes in our ears. And we, we think this sounds like what he was talking about. God, his servant is high and lifted up. While it was not clear to the Jews of Jesus' day, 
We know that Jesus, the suffering servant, was God himself. He was high and lifted up. He was the same. The suffering servant was the same one who was on the throne in Isaiah 6. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. This description of of the suffering servant, he was so beaten, so tortured for us that people would look at him and think, He's not even recognizable as human. He was so marred beyond human semblance. He was so mistreated. You couldn't even recognize him. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. I think this is a reference not only to, to kings, but he says, shall sprinkle many nations. He's, he's going out beyond just the nation of Israel, but to many nations. He's going to the Gentiles. What Jesus is doing there, it's a priestly function. It's like sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice. And he's sprinkling many nations. It's not just for the Jews. For every tribe and tongue. Kings will be included in this. Kings, as they see the Lord Jesus, will shut their mouths. They will be, will have anything to say because of what they've seen in Jesus. For that which they for that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which has been told. And that which is, they have not heard, they understand. Now notice this. Who are those who have not been told? The Gentiles. The Jews, they had scripture. They had the Torah, they had the prophets, they had, they had scripture to tell them about this expectation of the seed of the woman that would come and crush the serpent's head. But the Gentiles didn't have that. What they did not see, what they did not hear about, they shall see. In contrast, think back to yesterday morning. What was Isaiah to proclaim to the people of Israel? Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Keep on hearing, but do not hear. These Gentiles, on the other hand, What they didn't have, what they'd never heard before, all of a sudden they're able to see. And as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, we see so many who came to Jesus. Then it says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? As we look at the Old Testament, we hear about the arm of the Lord. And this is kind of Exodus imagery. It points back, the the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt with his mighty hand and with his outstretched arm. 
But even then, when God delivered his people, it was an invisible power. No one saw him face to face except Moses. And they asked, who has to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When Jesus comes, the arm of the Lord, it's no longer just this invisible power. You will see it. You will see what God is doing with his outstretched arm, with the suffering servant who comes to win the battle for his people. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Jesus grew up in obscurity. He grew up. Uh, I mean, he was born in Bethlehem, moved to Egypt, brought, came back to Nazareth, and, and people wondered, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isn't this just the son of Joseph and Mary? He was really nobody that anybody would think anything of up until the time he began his earthly ministry. He just grew up out of the ground like a young plant. He came from obscurity. And this root out of dry ground can remind us of the root of Jesse. The one who was a descendant of David. The one who was the rightful king. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus did not come into the world for his own glory while he was here. But he... He became a servant. He was humiliated. He didn't draw attention to himself until the Lord exalted him above all. And then it begins talking about what he did for us. It explains the meaning of, of why Jesus came, why he took that pain upon him, why he experienced those sorrows. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Why did Jesus have to suffer so much? Because that's what we deserved. We deserve. We think we might suffer now. Think about what we deserve. And Jesus bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Maybe when, when we first hear about Jesus, we think, oh, that's, 
man was smitten by God. He was he couldn't possibly be the God of the universe. He couldn't possibly be someone who's worthy of worship. Look at what he experienced, all the kind of rejection that he had. But what's amazing is he is Lord of the universe. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our transgressions are those things when we cross the line, when we transgress, when there's a line where we know sin is and we willingly, purposefully choose to cross over the line. He was pierced for that, for our transgressions. He was pierced through his hands, through his feet, through his side. He was pierced for our transgressions. For when I cross the line, for when you cross the line, he was pierced for that. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our guilt. He was crushed for that. While we deserve to be crushed under the wrath of God, He took it for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The discipline, the punishment that brought us peace. We see in here reconciliation. In order for us to be reconciled with God, in order for us to have peace with God, there had to be a punishment that was taken out. It's kind of the idea that John writes about a propitiation. He was the propitiation of our sins, for our sins. God was angry with us because of our sins, and His punishment appeased God. So that we could be reconciled with him. And his, by his wounds we are healed. I think that of that in a spiritual sense. We are broken people. We are sinners and by his wounds we are healed. And I think in an eschatological sense. In a, in a sense of Jesus is coming again one day. And by his wounds, he purchased a new creation where we will no longer have disease and affliction. We will no longer have death. We will no longer have mental illness. We will no longer have all of the things that afflict us today. Jesus has purchased our healing on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us his own way. He points back to our guilt. We have all wandered. We have been given grace. We have been given so many blessings. And we wander away from the right path. We do this willingly. We choose to go our own way. We are like sheep.
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are all guilty. We are all broken. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ is our righteousness. He has given us a righteousness that was his. One that is not our own. But in order to do that, he took on our guilt. We bear guilt for the things that we've done when we have sinned against God. And he took on not only our punishment, but he took on our guilt, our iniquity. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. While Jesus suffered those things, he suffered silently. It shows that he was going that way willingly. He chose to obey his father. He chose to follow the father's plan. He didn't complain. And just think of how often when just a little thing goes wrong in our day, we complain about it. Jesus was oppressed and afflicted. And he didn't open his mouth. He didn't complain about it. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. A lamb that's being led to slaughter is on the way. He's on the way there. And on the way to the cross, he opened not his mouth. He didn't complain He went and he set his face like a flint towards the cross. And a sheep before its shears, it's not just on the way, it's in the process. A sheep before the shears is actually standing there having its wool cut off. And he opened not his mouth. While he was at the cross, he, he didn't... He didn't strike out at God for being unjust. Well, he did call out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He didn't accuse God of being unjust. He suffered in silence. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his Generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. It was by oppression and judgment. It was by wickedness. It was by a. It was without due process. That's the term that's on our minds of these days. This is without due process that he was taken away and he was taken away, cut off from the land of the living. He was killed. Died, stricken for the transgression of my people. After he died, he was buried in a tomb. It says in verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had no, done no violence, 
and there was no deceit. While Jesus was perfectly sinless, he had never done anything wrong. He was perfectly righteous, yet he was nailed to a cross between two thieves like a common criminal. And when he was taken down, he was buried in a rich man's grave. Joseph of Arimathea. Yet, after all that, Isaiah tells us, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Well, just a few verses, well, just a verse before that, it tells us it was by oppression and judgment that he was taken away. It was without due process, yet it was the will of the Lord. Who killed Jesus? Well, it was wicked men through a rigged process, but at the same time, it was God's plan. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This verse tells us it was about making an offering. It was about a substitutionary sacrifice. This offering for guilt points back to the sacrificial system. The one that pointed forward to Jesus' death on the cross. The sacrificial system, an animal would be placed on an altar and killed. Sins would go upon the animal, but really never did. They pointed forward to the fact that Jesus would take our sins upon him. And then it says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Well, how can this be? In verse 8, it told us that he had been cut off from the land of the living. He'd already died. In verse 10, we see he was resurrected. He was resurrected. He shall see his offspring. You can't see your your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren after you're gone. But yet... Here, the suffering servant had already died, and it says he shall see his offspring. That word again is the seed. Remember that word from last night? The seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And when we are in Christ, we're counted in the seed. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. While he had been cut off from the living land of the living, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Notice there, we see the word, the will of the Lord, twice. First off, it was, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And then it's the, the will of the Lord that will prosper in his hands. While it was God's plan that it would be done through crushing the son, it was not done for nothing. But it was done so that he would prosper. So that he would raise up many sons and daughters. You and I, here in this room, are here because of what Jesus did upon the cross. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, 
shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus will receive his reward. He will receive his reward. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the portion with the strong. He's going to receive his reward. What he did, he didn't do it just for nothing, like I just said, but for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. That he would have many brethren who are called to himself, called his children, his sons and daughters. He did this for us. He was our substitute. Man of sorrows. What a name.